0: The 26th United Nations Climate Change Conference, a COP26, concluded last month and the overall outcome was quite lukewarm. Leaders from across the world, civil society organizations, businesses and youth gathered in Glasgow, UK where discussions were held and commitments were again made to address the global climate crisis and try to limit warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius. The IPCC, in its latest reports, has made it clear that a global net zero by 2050 was the minimum requirement for limiting global warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius. So what is net zero, you ask? Well, in simple terms, it means that whatever amount of greenhouse gases, which are the main culprit for climate change, you put into the atmosphere, the same amount is removed. The greenhouse gases going into the atmosphere are balanced by removal out of the atmosphere and hence, net zero. Now this can be done through planting of trees and increasing forest cover, but also through technical solutions like capturing the released carbon from fossil-based power plants and injecting it back into the earth, also known as CCUS or carbon capture and sequestration. Now in that context, several countries committed to becoming net zero and in COP26, they declared the year by which they would do so. The United Kingdom and US declared that year to be 2050, for China it was 2060, and India declared it to be 2070. So what does the path to net zero look like, particularly for a country like India? Let's find out in this episode. Hi. This is Matrika Gimire, and you are listening to Sustainability Unmasked, brought to you by Sustainable Sikkim and Climate Survival Solutions India. Today we are joined by Professor Rangan Banerjee who is the Forbes Marshall Chair Professor in the Department of Energy Science and Engineering at IIT Bombay. He is also associated with Centre for Policy Studies and IDP in Climate Studies at the same institute. Professor Banerjee is on the editorial board of several international journals and has been involved in several international and national committees on energy such as the Global Energy Assessment, UK's Energy Research Group, the Planning Commission and has been also involved in India's integrated energy policy. He has also been involved in advising the State Regulatory Commission, the Planning Commission, the Niti Ayog of India and MNRE on several energy related issues. It's an honor to have him with us for today's discussion. First of all, thank you so much, Professor, for agreeing to be a part of this. Thank you, sir.
1: Yes, Matrika, please go ahead.
0: Uh, so the COP26 concluded recently and our Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, made some big announcements, including non-fossil fuel-based energy capacity increase, reducing the total projected carbon emissions, reducing the carbon intensity to less than 45% by 2030, But the big announcement came by committing to become carbon neutral and then achieve net zero emissions by 2070. So how do these targets look to you? What do you think about these targets that were announced?
1: I think these targets are ambitious, but they are uh, targets which actually put us in the right direction. You know, you talked about the net zero target for the emission intensity and uh, the renewables target growing till 2030. Both of these, we have already actually ramped up our renewables capacity and emissions intensity are also being uh, reduced. However, these are stiffer targets. We have to progress at a faster rate. These are uh, challenging targets, but could be achieved depending on the way in which we progress. Now, to come to the question of the net zero target, uh, there was there's been a lot of discussion and debate on, you know, whether or not we should uh, actually agree to a net zero target, uh, given the fact that on a per capita basis, our uh, CO2 emissions are significantly lower than the uh, world average. Uh, the There are two issues on this Matrikal, and one of this is that we are talking of a 50-year time horizon for us to go towards net zero. And as a you know, as one of the responsible countries providing one-sixth of the world's population, if we see the impact of climate change, which is already evident in the kind of extreme events that are going around. Uh, so it is it is imperative that all countries actually try and see how we can move away from the kind of carbon emissions that we are seeing today and with this in mind i think it is something that our country should have done we have decided and we have given us ourselves a time frame of 50 years uh, to get there but uh, we want to be part of the solution even though we are not the main uh, contributor to the problem uh, there's another issue of course is that uh, will it affect our development and though that that's a separate issue, but this is a sort of statement of intent, saying that this is what we want to do, and this is uh, setting a target for our technologists, our researchers, and the entire energy sector. That you know, in we have a fifty-year time horizon in which we have to move away from our current pathway and go towards a net zero.
0: Now that we have an intent, now that we have a goal, a target, a year has been set. So do you think that this can be taken as an opportunity to perhaps reconsider the development pathway for India, the way we have been approaching development and maybe think about it in, you know, less carbon intensive ways? So if if that's the case, then what do the pathways look like? What transformations are needed?
1: So several transformations are needed and uh, we can see very clearly that a couple of things are already in the works for instance an improvement in terms of efficiency and that is happening all across the board we could also see changes in the usage pattern and changes in lifestyle that's not been happening much though we have seen we've been forced to do some of this with uh, the covid impact then the third part which we are seeing is uh, a shift to renewables and that has been happening um so we are seeing some trends, but we have to also realize that currently, predominantly, our energy supply is from fossil. So it's a big, big transition. And all of these transitions involve costs. It involves changes in lifestyle. It involves uh, disruptions. And uh, there will be winners and losers. So it is not going to be easy.
0: Absolutely, I agree with that. And um, that is one of the criticisms that this whole net zero also has been getting because it kind of adds pressure on developing countries, like you said, whose historical emissions have been quite less, but have so many development targets to achieve.
1: So so Matrika, the, the issue is that Uh, In the case of developing countries, we have a short-term issue where we want to provide the services required to improve the quality of life of our people. And that would mean investments. And so there, when we look at, we also are looking at jobs, we're looking at equity impacts. Uh, So in such a condition, the existing infrastructure which has been centralized and fossil fuel-based, we would like to use it to the extent possible before we invest in creating new infrastructure, which is based on renewables. And uh, given the fact that in any case, our per capita emissions, as compared to many of the developed countries, are uh, significantly lower. And then the question is that, yes, we are going to make the transition, but how are we going to pay for it? What is the cost of the transition who is going to bear that cost is it not fair that the developed countries actually help us in terms of the investments in terms of the kind of uh, costs of transition so this is i think this is one of the things that we need to uh, think about but we should decouple this from the ambition of going towards net zero because this doesn't mean going towards net zero does not mean that we do not Hold countries accountable for the burden of the total uh, grandfathered emissions that we are talking of, and we uh, establish mechanisms by which there are funds created to enable developing countries uh, to meet this challenge. Um, The. The the conversation in many of the cases, as well as the dialogue in. Many of these COP and other meetings, as well as if you see in the assessments that are there, has been predominantly on focusing on the developing countries and the developing world to try and go for a pathway which is uh, less uh, carbon and going towards low carbon. Uh, While this um, this is something that we should be doing, but Uh, or the flip side of this is there is going to be a cost to it and that cost has to be borne by the countries and by the populations that have uh, got a disproportionate share of the carbon budget. Now this is a tricky issue, this is a political issue, but I think for us the issue was should we declare a uh, zero, uh, net zero year and we have declared this because this is something that we believe as a uh, as a part of the uh, of the uh, world's uh, attempt to uh, you know get the world back to a sustainable future we all have to go towards net zero uh, eventually and we've given ourselves a 50 year time period uh, having said that we also need to make sure that we uh, look at the costs of transition We also need to look at funds for this uh, transition. We need to think in terms of the most vulnerable populations who are going to be affected. Uh, We also need to think in terms of whatever happens, we will see, see some amount of problems due to climate change which is going to happen. And we need to think in terms of vulnerability and adaptation, and again, funding for resilience of us in infrastructure, our energy systems and our lives. Uh, And I think uh, both these things need to be talked about in the same way that we are looking at mitigation and net zero. Mm
0: -hmm. And um, talking about a sustainable future, going towards a net zero future also demands decarbonization of the energy sector. Now, that means investing more in solar, in renewables, in hydro. And not all of these technologies are inherently sustainable. Are you you can shed some light to that?
1: Yes, yes, Matrika. Actually, what has been happening is, you know, we've had the impression that uh, we can quickly ramp up uh, solar and wind. Uh, Hydro has its own problem, especially the large hydro, uh, in terms of the kind of displacement and the kind of areas which are uh, to be, uh, which are, taken up. But uh, even for PV and wind, what we've been doing is we've been creating large mega projects where we have uh, at one place, we'll have some 600 megawatts or one gigawatt. And that means again, these are large centralized. These are done with the idea that we can finance them and do them quite quickly. However, these in themselves have some problems in terms of sustainability and um, the other issue which will happen is that when we are looking at the renewables being at the margins when they are providing 10 percent 15 percent 20 percent of the electricity that is one issue but when we start providing 30 40 percent and especially if it is mostly with solar every additional megawatt hour that we provide through solar will have to go through storage before it is used in some other time period which means that we need to have cost effective storage. And currently the cost of storage is adding another five to six rupees per kilowatt hour, which means that the average cost of electricity supply will increase. And finally, consumers will need to pay for it. Uh, Of course, uh, technologies will improve, costs will come down, but we have to wait and see. So basically uh, there is potentially a problem in terms of jobs, in terms of the uh, growth and the development. And it also does mean that there are special dimensions to it. In India, in certain regions, if you look at Chhattisgarh, Jharkhand, we have a lot of coal-based and we have a lot of fossil-based resources and the economy depends a lot on these fossil fuels. Most of the solar and wind is coming in the West and in the South, in other states. And so actually jobs will be created in one part of the region. Economic growth will be there in one part of the region. And there will be disruptions and shutdowns in another part. And this is going to create social tensions. This is going to create disruptions. This is something which needs to be planned for. We need to have a just transition fund. We need to be able to retrain people. We need to be able to see and compensate the losers from the benefits that we are getting in the regions that we have. And uh, unfortunately, there is not much of conversation around these just transitions. So I think it is not automatic. A net zero transition may result in increasing the inequality may result in creating hardships for a lot of vulnerable uh, populations and this has to be thought through this has to be st- this has to be analyzed and we need to create support systems so that the uh, disruptions are minimized as well as different segments of the population do not have this because any large scale transition in an energy system uh, has socio economic impacts uh, which are quite far-reaching. I think we need to put this up there in the agenda. It's not just about somehow installing the technology and getting the investments.
0: What you said about Charkhand and Chhattisgarh and the negative impacts, the unequal distribution of energy transitions, I think this is not just a case for India, but across the world where there might be Uh, fossil fuel-based economies and communities in one part, but the benefits of energy transitions may be reaped by some other place completely. To add to that, you know, I just had this question about the COP26. There were comments, for instance, by the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, who said that the COP26 was a compromise and that it was not sufficient. And even Greta Thunberg speaks about how immediate, drastic and unprecedented cuts are required. But as a researcher, that also puts me in this ethical dilemma sometimes, because like you said, it's not so easy, is it? You know, you just can't say that, okay, coal is causing a problem, so just keep coal on the ground or keep fossils on the ground, because there are all these issues of just transitions that come to play here.
1: It is a compromise. There is a short-term versus long-term issue. See, if we have a coal-based power plant and a coal-based infrastructure which has been created with public investments, and we would like to, rather than investing in something and shutting that down, we would like to see it being used up for its residual life. The point is that for a large proportion of the population, it is about the basic needs. It is about getting the livelihoods and getting these income and getting the food and shelter. We are also looking at a long-term impact, but when we do any of these things, for instance, you can see in the last uh, five years or so, if you look at uh, renewables getting into our system as must runs, this has resulted in the plant load factor of many of the coal-based power plants coming down which means that there are several plants with 30% or lower. And these are plants which are now non-performing assets. And these are assets which have actually been invested in by banks, public sector banks. So finally, it is the population which will have to bail uh, these out. So the point is that we can argue it in various ways, uh, but you can also see that Uh, if you are looking at a developed country where all the infrastructure has been built, the growth rate has saturated and actually the CO2 emissions on an average may be 15-20 times that of the uh, Indian average. Uh, Now if you want them to drastically reduce to 1 20th, there will be significant disruptions. They don't want to do that, but they want for us as we are still Uh, looking at a large proportion of our uh, population who still do not have access to the services, do not have, we still need housing, we need to use cement, we need to have steel, and uh, all of that. Currently, we have an infrastructure which is based on fossil. If we have to replace that infrastructure, it has significant amount of costs and that cost also means that it will affect the rest of the economy and it will affect the growth so we have to balance this and so yes it is a compromise but that compromise has to be something which we have to do because we have to balance the short term versus the long term so Mm -hmm. we need to think in terms of a long-term goal which we will move towards But in the short term, if you see, for all these countries and the people who are uh, telling us that we need to go faster, we need to move out of coal, etc., their carbon dioxide emissions per capita are significantly higher than ours. So I think, uh, I mean, there are, uh, it's very tricky. I mean, it depends on the lens through which we look at it. There is a balance. We have to find that balance. There are short-term national needs which we need to balance with the overall uh, global needs that we recognize and that we have acknowledged. But uh, we that's why we are talking of phasing down the coal, right? We already have certain mm-hmm. amount mm-hmm. of coal. And yeah. uh, we you know our energy security. We have more coal than we have any of the other fossil fuels. We are slowly figuring out how we can face that face that down and we don't want to abruptly create some a problem and uh, i think this is something which needs to be acknowledged and understood by everyone then it is not sufficient to just say that you know we are not doing yes we are not going fast enough but uh, there are costs of going fast enough and how do we meet those costs we are anyway a poor country so it's it's going to be very disruptive if we don't. Yeah, so we need to look at the infrastructure that we have, and we need to plan out a transition. But we need to do that without abrupt disruptions. And this is a challenge.
0: And and how do you envision that um, in in such a scenario where we are decarbonizing? Um, do we address issues of energy security and energy access in our country? How do you think? What what is the pathway that can be
1: followed there? So, so the I mean, this has been shown very clearly in many cases that energy access, the poorest uh, population uh, do not contribute very significantly to the carbon dioxide emissions. So the access has to be affordable and we need to provide that. We need to also couple that with uh, access, which is productive. I and mean, in which results in uh, increasing employment and increasing value, and this is a tricky thing. Uh, so this is, uh, this is a challenge, but I think these two are not mutually exclusive unless we put too much funds into the transition where we don't, so we we need to separate out and we need to have targeted focus on access and not, not let our uh, preoccupation with net zero affect that. Uh, there is a significant challenge in terms of cooking. So we have been looking at electricity and we can see some pathways for electricity, but if you look at cooking fuel, uh, we, Currently a large proportion of our population is using traditional biomass with low efficiencies. Now traditional biomass by its very nature, based on twigs and branches and agricultural residues, is something which is considered to be carbon neutral. Now this has though an adverse local emissions and health impact, and rightly our government has insisted on moving our population from the uh, solid fuels to gaseous fuels and LPG but this means that our cooking solution is going to have significant amount of CO2 emissions and uh, so we need to think in terms of what is the solution for that and are we going to be able to capture sufficiently and continue with gas or are we going to be able to look at biogas and other solutions, or solar cooking solutions, or we look at modern biomass gasifiers, or we look at um, electric cooking, and then make our electric, uh, electricity renewables. So I think the cooking challenge is much more tricky to me than even the electricity challenge, and I think we need both technology, innovation, and affordability, but this is, I think, a very tricky thing. Uh, going forward for our net zero?
0: One of the criticisms of net zero, relying on technologies which which are not operational yet. For instance, the current net zero plans do rely on technologies, be it carbon sequestration or other geoengineering technologies, which which are not operational yet. Now, Now, this is quite a risky bet, isn't it? I mean, I hope it's not going to be a case of, you know, tomorrow's problems being today's solutions because it, it kind of gives a license to emit now, but remove later. So think?
1: Matrika, the point in all of this is that as a society, we set goals. The societal goal is that we want to move towards net zero. Now this is mm-hmm. the challenge for all our innovators and technologists. Okay. We want to set net zero targets because of that, there is a mission to create technologies in a cost of. Afford- Effective way which will move towards that direction and i think that is the way we are looking at it we are not looking at net zero in five years ten years we are talking of a 50 year time horizon that's sufficient time for technologists to develop alternatives and mm-hmm. now the other issue in all of this is that in coupled with this is also business and we are looking at competition so a lot of these technologies are captured by some countries, are captured by some corporations, and this IP, and then there are uh, costs to that IP, and this is again something which I think should be there as part of the negotiation. If as a society we want to go there, can we try and see how do we reduce these uh, monopoly or, or oligopoly kind of situation where you have some critical technologies which are still controlled some critical materials which we are still controlled because we are looking at the entire survival of the planet and i think we need to go beyond this short term profits of some corporations and uh, countries and, and and figure out ways in which we can actually uh, reduce this well We've been successful in many of these things where there have been challenges and costs have come down drastically because of learning curve impacts, because of innovation. So I'm hopeful that there would be some solutions. Right now, we may not know which will be the solution. So whether mm-hmm. CCS will be cost effective. So I think we need to keep an open mind. We need don't need to prescribe everything. But mm-hmm. we yes, we need to move away from the so it is technically, of course, many of these things are possible, but, you know, um, that is not something which is cost effective. And so it's all related to technology and cost. And then finally, of course, we can modify lifestyles. So in the worst case scenario, one can modify lifestyles and live within that budget. But uh, we can probably do something in between. And some of these things will go, there will be a compromise and a dynamics as we go forward. But I think in the entire agenda, this whole issue of transitions, costs of transitions, fairness and equity need to be playing a much bigger role. And this is something which we need to articulate, we need to calculate, we need to see. And then we need to see that these, uh, the fairness of who's going to supply which costs and who's going to create, who's going to actually pay for these Mm -hmm. transitions uh, should be thought through.
0: Um, Net zero has of course gained a lot of attention in COP26, but from an overall climate justice and a climate action viewpoint, do you think it also took away attention from other aspects that probably need to pay attention to, especially in the developing countries where perhaps resilience needs to be paid attention as well. What do you think about that?
1: I think so. I think, Matrika that uh, resilience, vulnerability, uh, looking at ways in which we can adapt and provide uh, mechanisms and funding. So we had uh, seen in Paris a target in terms of a green carbon fund and very little of it actually materialized so now also we've seen lots of promises of funds but i think many of these things are posturing so I, it is true that net zero was the one main thing which sort of came out in the, the cop 26 um, but i think the fact that there are going to be impacts and there is going to be disruption as well as uh, many of the vulnerable countries and many of the developing countries will uh, have significant impacts and costs associated with it. And so I would have liked to have talked about funds for costs of transition, just transitions, more about equity. But uh, these agendas in COPs have always been decided by the North and by the developed countries, and we have sort of uh, fallen in line. And uh, unfortunately, Matrika, that's the way. It's an unequal world. And uh, even these transitions uh, result actually in increasing that uh, inequality. And uh, it can be actually an opportunity for reversing that. Uh, However, that is very tricky. And that, I think, should be there This equity issue should be there in the minds of all climate activists where we think in terms of not just shutting down the coal plants, but looking at what is happening in terms of livelihoods in the regions. This is not to say that, you know, long term we know that these coal plants have to be shut down, but is there a softer way so that the disruptions in lifestyles and the incomes of the vulnerable population is minimized while we make these transitions.
0: My final question, sir, is, um, uh, Professor, going forward, how do you envision energy technology to evolve now that there has been so much focus on decarbonization? How how do you imagine the future to look like?
1: We're already seeing much more of renewables. So we're seeing Mm -hmm. EV and wind. Uh, In India, we are seeing them more centralized. I think I would like to see uh, many more decentralized solutions. I would mm-hmm. like to see innovations in cooking. I would like to see the industry becoming decarbonized and that is again possible, but uh, there needs to be some kind of push. Many industries are realizing that. so that means processes and then we can look at ego eco design where we ch- change the e- equipment, the materials, we change our products so that they become low carbon. Um, uh, We have to wait and see in terms of storage and hydrogen, and what kind of cost reductions are there in terms of hydrogen. That could be another thing. Biomass based solutions again could be not much talked about, but again, these are things which uh, do afford uh, one possible solution. So I think there are many possible pathways to go towards net zero. And we need to explore some of these, and we need to see how we can make them uh, cost-effective. And this is something that we will, as, as we go along, we need to sort of take stock and see which one is uh, sort of winning the race. But I think we've set ourselves a target, and uh, I think it's a good direction. Uh, we need to be aware that going from where we are to the target, has a lot of pitfalls and challenges and then there are costs of this transition which we need to plan out.
0: Thank you so much professor for such an enlightening conversation.
1: Thank Thank you so much much,
0: thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in That was Professor Rangan Banerjee and we had a very insightful conversation. Let us know how you liked this episode. You can reach out to us through email or social media and the details are given below. That's it for today's episode and I'll see you on the next one. Here's to hoping that 2022 is not as bad as 2020 or 2021. Happy New Year, everybody.